0: All right, so we are in Jeremiah chapter three, and by way of introduction, I'll say that uh, we know the chapter divisions that we have in our Bibles uh, is a relatively late invention. Uh, our whole referencing uh, uh, is somewhat of a late invention, and uh, particularly um, the the ending of one thought doesn't necessarily um, apply to the actual end of a particular chapter, and, and that is uh, certainly uh, the case this time. You'll recall that last week we talked a lot about um, uh, God's description of uh, how things had gone badly in terms of the relationship between he and his people. And uh, it was basically, I'm bringing a lawsuit of divorce against you, Uh, because of all the ways that you have been unfaithful to me. And that concept, we picked that back up uh, beginning with Jeremiah uh, three one. So I'll uh, jump on in there. It says, If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? So, this particular um, uh phrasing this this opening passage here uh refers back to a law which was well accepted by this time and was is present uh back <coughs> in deuteronomy and it's basically said the following: if you were married, the presumption would be that the man had decided to divorce his wife, if she went and remarried someone, and then when that, if and when that relationship dissolved, if the first husband went back and remarried her, that was forbidden. And the concept was um, to prevent frivolous divorce, because back in the day, and a uh, very patriarchal society, a man might just be disappointed that supper wasn 't good that night, uh, knowing that he would have the option to remarry her down the road and Of course, this you know just you know makes a mockery of the whole marriage covenant, and so that law was put into place to show that you know if you divorced your wife, uh, that was it in terms of that relationship, and so in a way, it was actually. Uh, helped protect the marriage covenant and in many ways protected the woman uh, from some frivolous uh, disagreement. Um, The the full text is in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and that indecency could be broadly interpreted and if he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she's been defiled Before that is an abomination before the Lord and she will not bring sin upon the land that your Lord God is giving you for and inheritance. So that's all background for this phrasing here, uh, where it says, "If a man divorces a wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would that not, would that land not be greatly polluted?" So God is saying to these people, uh, "I'm divorcing you, and you're not going to be able to come back to me. That's how hard it. That's how bad a, a spot we're in." Now of course, God's grace is beyond the law, and He intends to do the very thing that says can't be done—to uh, to receive, you know, His bride back and to reinstate her. But He makes this point that this is how this is how badly it's gone for you. Uh, in essence, you have almost divorced yourself from Me and said. Coming back is not even an option. He goes on. You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord. In other words, this is, um, you have, you've not just had one, you know, set of idols that you've gone after. It's been many. And this is the second time in this first verse that we hear this term, would you return to me? Will he return to her? And those scholars that know Hebrew make the point that Jeremiah is prone to wordplay. And this would be akin to, you know, very eloquent pastors. I, I can, I can in, my, in the back of my head, I can hear uh, perhaps some of our, our famous black pastors who would just hit on a, a word over and over again as a rhetorical device because it makes a point and And it's a way of of just reminding you uh people weren't necessarily taking notes right This wasn't uh, a PowerPoint presentation uh it was a very verbal society of error you know these are oracles that uh, jeremiah is is pronouncing in in probably in in a public discourse. so all of those um uh, speech writing techniques that uh, you might think of are, are used here. And apparently the Hebrew word that uses a root for return um, is used about 16 or 18 times in this one chapter alone. Uh, also, there's a several times, like in verse 6, it, it talks about the faithless one. Uh, that also uses that same term. So when you see the word turn or return or faithless, which basically means the turning away ones Um, is translated uh, faithless, those are all Jeremiah's way of holding this chapter together uh, with the theme. And that is going to be the theme here about God calling them to turn, calling them to repentance, calling them to stop what they're doing and to start doing something different. So uh, I went through and Uh, In my Bible, and just every time I saw the word turn or return, um, faithless one, just circled that uh, to remind me of what uh, Jeremiah was doing. All right, verse 2. We better pick up the (laughs) pace. Lift up your your eyes to the bare heights and see where have you not been ravished. By the waysides you have sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. You know, we're going to get probably a little fatigued on hearing uh, about all of the um, whoring going on. Um, And um, I think that's uh, probably the point. Uh, Verse 2 says, uh, look up to the hills. And remember we talked about, and we're going to see again later, uh, that in these high places was where this... um, uh, you know, sexual promiscuity was happening, all under the guise of uh, Baal worship, and there's some pretty graphic language here. It says, "Look up to the hills. Can you see a spot where you haven't been raped?" And that's, it's a apparently a word that's even worse than rape. Uh, apparently, the Hebrew writers didn't even want to translate the word. Uh, so they put in a different word that was milder. Um, uh, the ESV that I use says ravished. Some say defiled. Um, the older translations say lain with. You know, nobody, everybody wants to clean it up. But the, Jeremiah was specifically using a dirty word because it was a dirty deed. That's the point. It says, By the wayside you have set awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness... I saw different people, this, this kind of visual picture. Uh, as you see someone along the roadside, you could picture um, prostitutes on a street corner. You could picture um, uh, vendors just waiting to rush upon a potential customer. That's what Jeremiah is saying. Um, you, you were looking for opportunities to commit adultery against me. You were seeking this out. This wasn't some, oh, I made a mistake sort of thing. You were actively doing this. Verse 3 Therefore, the showers have been withheld and the spring rain has not come. You have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. You're not hanging your head about what you're doing, you're not ashamed of it. You're proud of it. And for that reason, it hasn't been raining. We talked about water last time, and this would have been really serious, right? And for them to to realize, you know what? It hasn't been raining. It has been dry. And, okay, God means business here. This is also kind of a slant against Baal, apparently one of the Baal universe gods was um, thought to be in charge of the water and God saying no that was me verse 4 have you just have you not just now called to me my father you are the friend of my youth will he be angry forever will he be indignant to the end behold you have spoken but you have done all the evil that you could uh, verses 4 and 5 is basically like yeah a few of you tried to apologize, but I know you weren't sincere. You're kind of changing the topic. I'm talking about you committing adultery with me, and you're trying to pretend I'm your daddy, and I'm just going to not be serious about this. That's what all that is. So he takes another tack here, beginning in verse 6, and basically he's pointing, remember what happened to... Your sister Israel, remember we're talking about the the main tribe of Judah and Benjamin and the ten northern tribes have already been assimilated by Assyria. But he points to them as an object lesson. Verse 6, it says, The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? And I thought, after she has done all this... She will return to me, but she did not return. So that's three times already, this word. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one. There's another one. I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree, Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me, but her whole heart, uh, with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. In other words, Judah saw everything that Israel was doing, the northern tribe. Judah saw what was happening. Judah saw how it was an affront to God. Judah saw how God allowed Assyria to come in and capture them and take them off into captivity and in spite of that Judah did it too in spite of that just upfront object lesson you know it would be like if there was a civil war and this whole other half of the country got taken away and the other half went on like it didn't even happen Verse 11, And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. In other words, as horrible as that was, you guys are worse. Because you saw how bad it was, and you did it anyway. Verse 12, Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. So you're going to see this back and forth of God calling them to repentance and then God saying, this is what this this would look like. This is where my heart is on this. I hate it. It's a personal affront to me. Um, It's just, you know, we talked about how personal God takes our sin last week. So that's all still there. But he's basically saying, I am, I am ready to receive you if you repent. And he tells them how to do it. Verse 13, Just acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children. Return, you turning away ones, declares the Lord. For I am your master, I will take you, one from a city, two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Some people hear this, this phrasing, uh, I will take you, one from a city, and two from a family, I will bring you to Zion, um, as a as kind of a an example of God's uh, elective role, the, the sovereignty of God, saying I'm going to... Um, I'm going to take you and I'm going to bring you. Some people also hear in this language, uh, and we'll see a little bit further late, uh, later in the passage, of God looking past the exile, right? So we know that Assyria has already taken the northern kingdoms. We know that the southern kingdom is going to fall as well, right? That the Babylonians are going to take Judah and, and the Babylonians are going to, basically take over Assyria as well so now everybody's in exile right and this is now we're picturing Daniel days right the, day, the days of exile when, when they're not even in Jerusalem anymore for the most part this is looking beyond that to a day when God's going to bring them back and that's, that's what this is uh, giving a hint for and it leads into verse 15 And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and increased in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed and it shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord and all nations shall gather to it to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall be no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. So, God's saying, there's going to come a day when I'm going to bring you back. There's going to come a day when Israel and Judah... We'll be back together again. There's going to come a day when I'm going to give you back your birthright. And they did come back to the land, right? But even then, it wasn't the ultimate fulfillment. As we know, there wasn't a nation of Israel self-governed until 1948. The rest of the time, they were under somebody else's rule. And then, of course, the ultimate spiritual ending has yet to be written when we see the full restoration happen um, that we get glimpses of in Revelation. So this, this is a sweeping <clears throat> prophecy here. And like we've seen many times in prophecies, it's like you're looking at things where there's maybe some partial fulfillment that's near, in this case an even further fulfillment that's a little more distant, and then the final fulfillment is yet to come. And thankfully we have the lens of the cross that we can look at all this with. But uh, this um, Ark of the Covenant reference is interesting. You know, who doesn't like Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Uh, just uh, one of the one of the best movies. Um but where is the ark? There's been speculation, but they think that when the Babylonians came for the southern kingdom, that that's, that's when the ark was destroyed. And true to this passage, we don't hear of the ark anymore. The last time it's referred to other than this is in, um, where was it, Second Chronicles? Yeah, Second Chronicles 35, which was Josiah... Remember and Josiah was one of the good kings and was uh one of the kings that Jeremiah uh worked with. It was Jeremiah I mean uh, Josiah who said, um, put the holy ark in the house that Solomon, the son of David, King Israel, built. Don't carry it on your shoulders, you know, serve the Lord your God and his people. That's the last reference to the ark uh when it is moved into Solomon's temple, and then they think somewhere around five eighty something BC, that it's destroyed when the Babylonians came, and we never hear it again. And in a way, that's kind of the point because with Jesus, God's not in one place. With the Holy Spirit, there's God's um, God's you know has disseminated uh, from being cooped up in one spot. All right, verse nineteen. I said. How I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all the nations, and I thought you would call me father and would not turn from following me. This is almost as if God is just kind of imagining. Imagining what he hopes it's going to be like. Right? I think of the father of the prodigal son hasn't heard from his son in a long time, and just imagining what it would be like if and when that prodigal came home. You know, if you think about it, this whole, we're going to kill the fatted calf, all that sort of thing, the dad had probably been imagining for years what it would look like when the son came home. This wasn't a spur-of-the-moment thing, and this is God some just imagining, you know, I would set you among my sons, give you a pleasant land. You know, this is, you know, I thought you would come back to me and call me father. You know, this is, that's the the tone here. Verse 20, Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. A voice on the bare heights is heard, the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons, because they have perverted their way, they have forgotten their Lord. Return, O faithless sons! I will heal your faithlessness. And again, we get, return, O turning away ones! I will hear your turning awayness, right? And that's just, you know, a butchered attempt to to catch this wordplay that Jeremiah has been doing. Behold, we come to you for you are the Lord our God. Truly, the hills are delusions, the orgies on the mountains. Truly, in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. Uh, This is, again, is God just picturing people that are truly repenting and they're even calling out the sins that they were involved in and they're saying, we're coming back to you. Verse 24, But from our youth the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored, their flocks, their herds, their sons and daughters. Let us lie down in our shame. Let us lie down in our shame. Let us, let our dishonor cover us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers from our youth, even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord. So we have in this passage God hoping for their repentance. In essence, they've been given kind of a model prayer of what true repentance looks like where they call out exactly what they did. Um, this made me think of, uh, I've talked off and on through the years about um, the work of uh, Ken Sandy and his successors um, with the Peacemaker Ministries and the outgrowth of that. And one of their core documents was called the Seven A's of Confession. Remember me mentioning that maybe at some point in the past? And it's like, if you really want to apologize to someone uh, and have them really believe that you're sorry, um, he has seven things to do. And I probably won't remember them all, but one is to acknowledge your fault. um, And you can't use the word but, right? I mean, we all know that when you say the word but, it kind of cancels out everything that went in front of it, right? Right? So acknowledge what you did, um, uh, accept the damage that you caused, um, uh, admit that you're wrong. Um, uh, I forget them all, but it's basically um, uh, give... Recompense for the damage that you did, try to restore it. I mean, it's a. If you did those seven A's, there would be no doubt in this person's mind that you were saying you're sorry, and that's what Jeremiah, or God through Jeremiah, is is saying. This is what your true repentance would look like. This is. This would get to the heart of what's going on, and he calls out their. Um, fake, apology, and says no. This is what it would look like at the core. Um, in, this, in this passage of um, Warren Wiersbe's commentary, uh, he says um, this concept of repentance at the core and getting rid of your the root sin, he said there was a guy in his church that when he would pray in public, that one of his little taglines was, and oh Lord, please take out the cobwebs of my heart. Well, apparently somebody got tired of it. And the next time he did that, the other guy says, "And Lord, while you're at it, kill the spider too." <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. But the point is, get it all. You know, repent all the way to the to the root cause and Several of the commentators made application to the church today. You know, are there things collectively that we need to repent from? You know, um, are we um, excited about status? You know, are we, uh, you know, proud of our demographic? Or are we proud of our facility? Or, you know, recognition or, you know, are there things that we're doing like that as a as a collective body? Um, I think on a local level, I, and that maybe this is being proud, but I think we've tried to set example of the opposite of that, right? I mean, uh, we've tried to have a great place to worship that you know is using you know an old warehouse, you know, and I, I think you know that's that's been good, and we try to be good stewards of our money and and we try to give locally and so forth, but it is something that we should all be uh, cognizant of uh, of what true repentance looks like and and to open ourselves up to uh, that evaluation of where we have drifted and and that sort of thing. So uh, this is this is uh, the progression of thought. So we have God recognizing their Um, harlotry and God calling them out and saying I'm going to divorce you but the point isn't that he wants to divorce them and get rid of them as we find in chapter 3 the point is he wants them to repent so that he can accept them back and that's the big idea and that's the father's heart and so for us we know but it always bears repeating there is nothing that we can do that god can't forgive and no matter how callous he's he's wanting us to do it he's wanting us to return and this this whole repentance idea matthew what was the first thing John the Baptist said as he was preparing people for Jesus was, repent. Later it says, of Jesus, and from that day forward, Jesus preached, you must repent. So, it's, a, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a new theme, but it's certainly something that God has been talking about for a very long time. Uh, and I think he means it. Alright. We'll close there. Any thoughts? Part of verse 23 struck me because it was such a contrast to David just a few hundred years before this. Uh, I'll lift up my eyes to the hills. And of course, he's looking beyond the hills. My help comes from the Lord. But out uh, there is. history. Yep. And few of their leaders ever really understood that and so people didn't. Yeah. Yeah, the um what's the, the hymn that says prone to war, prone to wander, Lord? What what's that come, come thou fountain? Prone to yeah, prone to wander, Lord. I mean, um their wanderings didn't stop when they made it to the promised land, right? Their spiritual wanderings continued um much beyond that, yeah. All right, let's close. Father, we thank you that you are ever ready to uh, accept our repentance and to receive us back in full fellowship, and that you always desire that for us. Uh, we pray that we could accept that and that we could uh, tell others about that offer that is always there. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody. Amen.